how are we potentially encouraging opportunistic behavior by adversaries across the world? From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm JJ Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian. Today, we're taking a look at what to expect from Air Power in 2024 with two good friends, Steve Trimble, the defense editor at Aviation Week and Space Technology, and Heather Penny of the Mitchell Institute. And of course, we'll have this week's headlines in Air Power. And it's all powered by GE. From America's first jet engine to the revolutionary three-stream adaptive cycle engine, GE Aerospace has been delivering firsts for military propulsion for more than 100 years. Learn about the latest innovation at geaerospace.com slash xa100. And the Defense and Aerospace Report's daily coverage is also brought to you by HII, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Bell, Leonardo DRS, and American Rheinmetall. JJ, what's in the news of the week on All Wings Considered, the first one of 2024? Ovago 2024 starts as 2023 ended with news about Embraer's KC-390 transport. Saudi Arabia is reported to be interested in replacing its 42 remaining C-130s with 33 KC-390s. And speaking of Saudi Arabia, Boeing now expects to produce six E-7 Widgetails per year instead of the previously estimated four. Now that there's a prospect of replacing NATO's E-3s, the whole U.S. Air Force fleet, and possibly Saudi Arabia's E-3s as well. China seems to have found an export customer for its F-35 lookalike, Shenyang's FC-31, with Pakistan looking to move into fifth-generation aircraft or something that looks like a fifth-generation aircraft. And Korean Aerospace has a $1.1 billion contract to supply light-armed helicopters, their derivative of the Airbus H-155 to the Korean government. Although quantities have not been announced, that should pay for about 40 of them. Vago? I certainly have to say that it's good news on the E-7, right? The U.S. Air Force has been moving a little bit more slowly on it, and we know that that's a next-generation capability our allies and partners need. Uh, and it's also a little glimmer of uh, good news, uh, assuming fuselage plug issues don't get in the way, right? <laughs> well, the E-7 is not based on the MAX 9 airframe, so we should be all right. <laughs> well, there's still a fuselage plug involved, so we'll see. Uh, I'm not necessarily sure that's uh, novel technology. What do we know, uh, JJ? You know, I mean, you did say uh, look a lot uh, in terms of the FC-31. What do we know about the quality of Chinese stealth capabilities, right? I mean, a lot of talk about the J-20, and indeed, the J-20 was a little ahead of its time. A long-range, free-ranging airplane, stealthy enough, doesn't have to be maximum uh, stealthy and NGAD looks like it's going to follow a similar track, right? A, a bigger airplane, a rangier airplane, uh, although there's no doubt about it, the U.S. airplane will be much stealthier. What do we know about the nature and the quality of Chinese stealth as you make the wisecrack look alike? Well, the J-20, by the way, it may be stealthy in the frontal aspect, but as soon as it goes to maneuver, it's got canards, and I don't know how you keep those from reflecting radar every which way. Anyway, with regard to the FC-31, it's got the shape of an F-35. There may have been a little bit of industrial espionage involved there, but we don't know the materials it's made out of yet. It is also a twin, so it's going to have some higher signatures in areas other than radar. Bottom line, until that aircraft actually gets in the air in some numbers and we're able to see it, we don't know how good its stealth is. But I can estimate that they are going to bring it in at a sufficiently attractive price that other countries will be interested, regardless of whether it's invisible to radar. 
And I just have to put in a word for the KC-390, right? At the time, it was introduced by Embraer uh, as both a tanker and a transport, a more efficient, sophisticated airplane than the C-130, not taking anything away from an airplane that is a giant and will be flying for many, many more decades, you know, uh, given its first flight was in 1955 and was the product of the skunk work. Are we looking at a generational shift? Did the Brazilians make a bet that's actually going to start paying off big, JJ? Well, the last several competitions we've seen, the KC-390 has beaten the C-130. I think they're leading by about three to one in the last few months in terms of wins. However, this is not a market with a high bar to entry. And I wouldn't be surprised to see another country or two coming along with transports in that class trying to take advantage of the C-130 retirements. And who do you see as the next market players uh, in this at a, at a time when the U.S. Air Force has got to think about what its future tactical transport and indeed its future heavy transports are going to look like, right? C-5, even though it's in upgraded form, we don't have enough of them and they're not exactly spring chickens, even though the M's are remanufactured. And then we've got a C-17 fleet that is getting increasingly tired because of high wear. Anyway, what, what do those other competitors look like? Anybody who can build a jetliner can build a transport. It's basically the same technology. So lots of countries that can build jetliners of various sizes are looking at building transports of various sizes. And, uh, you know, as you've noted, and we did so before we taped, right? Jet Zero could also be a player in some fashion in this or an innovative blended wing body or a scaled approach or something like that as you go into the future, right? Well, Jet Zero or someone like Jet Zero, which is a design house. Now that we have the example of Jet Zero, where the Air Force is willing to arrange a marriage between a designer and a producer, anybody with a good design can come along potentially and compete in this area. Still think that was uh, the biggest story in 2023 for us. I mean, absolutely uh, groundbreaking. I should say, having spent a lot of time on C-130s, and anybody knows uh, a C-130 has no facilities on it, one of the things that I truly love about the KC-390, having done very long drags on C-130s, is it has a commercial-grade toilet. Anyway, JJ, thanks very much for that. And joining us today are two good friends of the show and recognized as leading air power thinkers, Steve Trimble, the defense editor at Aviation Week and Space Technology, and Heather Penny, a senior resident fellow with the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. To you both, welcome back to the Air Power Podcast and a very happy new year. Vago, thanks, JJ. It's great to like be back with y'all. Yes, and thanks, Vago and JJ. Great to be here. An absolute pleasure. So 2024 is starting off with the same two major conflicts that ended 2023, right? Uh, at home, fortunately, we've got a budget deal, uh, which is great. We've got a new chief of staff and a new vice. And arguably the biggest news that we're going to be dealing with just in about a month's time or next month, actually, is being called by many to be the biggest reorganization of the United States Air Force in a generation to make it better suited for great power conflict. This initiative was started by Air Force Secretary Kendall in September, and it's moving very quickly. You know, he said, I want it to happen in the first quarter or at least start in the first quarter of next year, and that's happening. Then we've got the normal big programmatic news, right? Next generation air dominance is going to get headlines. Ground-based strategic deterrent is running you know, over budget, a lot over budget and behind schedule, even though it is one of the most ambitious programs we've had in a long time. Collaborative combat aircraft is moving on. And let's not forget about the Navy, right? 
We were hearing that the FAXX, the Navy's new high-end fighter, was going to come, you know, at first after NGAD and be shaped by NGAD, then it moved ahead of NGAD and it was going to be the next program. And now from everything I can gather, it looks like it's going to be slipping a little bit. Heather, start us off. What do you think are going to be the big stories of the year that the audience ought to be paying attention to, or even maybe the smaller stories of the year that are going to have a meaningful impact? Well, Vago, um, you already mentioned, I think, probably one of the biggest in terms of, of the Air Force, and that's going to be the reorganization. So for folks who haven't been tracking this, the Air Force is looking at doing some major reorganizations of their major commands, the MAGCOM. So we'll go down from roughly 10 MAGCOM, divide that by half. Some of the geographic commands will end up becoming more like component commands. But I think probably the biggest thing here is that we'll see the stand-up of what for many folks will smell, taste, and sound like the old systems command, the Integrated Capabilities Development Command. And this is intended to answer the question of how did the Air Force get the smallest, the oldest that we've ever been over the last 30 years? So this is intended to provide the Air Force continuity of capability gap assessment, requirements development, capability generation and development, and then production and fielding the capabilities the Air Force needs. I'm kind of agnostic right now about whether or not this reorganization is going to answer that modernization crisis, primarily for three reasons. One is we do not have the expertise to be able to staff a major command like that. So if we already have a fighter pilot shortfall, you know, we've said, well, hey, it's not really that big of a deal because we can keep all those fighter pilots that we have remaining in the cockpits. Yeah, that's fine. But you know what they're not doing? They're not on the staff. They're not doing the capabilities uh, assessments. They're not defining what their requirements are. So you have folks that do not have experience or expertise in that mission area that will be then responsible for doing that analysis, doing the requirements generation and fielding that new capability. So this is a, a major problem from a human capital and expertise perspective. There are two more things that I'm concerned about. One is the reorganization may not necessarily solve the bang-bang guidance that has in many ways contributed to the Air Force's crisis right now. So if we've seen a lack of commitment to new programs, to capabilities, like F-22 is a great example, I'm not sure that a reorg is necessarily going to fix that because in many ways it's been the personalities that have been bending to budget demands, you know, uh, the current context, the strategic context, the operational context, the wars that we're in, they've been bending to that. And that's been, in many reasons, I think, has contributed to the lack of continuity and support for Air Force programs and why we've not been able to field replacements at the pace that we had originally planned. And finally, the last piece is resourcing. You know, the Air Force has been under-resourced for 30 years, and a reorg isn't necessarily going to be able to solve a resourcing problem. So I don't disagree with the direction that Secretary Kendall is going. I remain agnostic as to whether or not it's going to fix those problems, because I think those three pieces, the experienced expertise personnel, um, having the personality and the commitment of senior leadership to the Air Force requirements and the need to recapitalize. And then finally, the willingness to advocate for the resourcing that they need. I'm not sure that uh, reorg is going to solve those three problems. 
I should also point out, right, I mean, one of the concerns, and uh, you know this well, Secretary Kendall was just concerned, and I think the chief has talked about it, and General Brown also discussed it uh, when he was chief, that some of the stuff was sort of falling between cracks and falling between authorities, right? It's in one person's silo, not in another person's silo. Each one of these component commanders are going to have a voice in terms of shaping the requirements. It's just that they're not controlled in their commands anymore, right? It's not going to be controlled in ACC. It's going to go into this new integrated systems command that is then going to generate sort of a more whole of Air Force answer as opposed to, you know, an ACC silo, if, if I understand it correctly. Is that a good way of thinking about I, it? I think it's an excellent way of characterizing it. But remember, I mean, the SIF leaves, the core function leave integrators were supposed to provide some of that broader enterprise look as well, where combatant commanders were going to make those horse trades so they could do that kind of systems enterprise look. But now, you know, they're not going to own the requirements. They'll provide inputs. They're not going to own the money. They'll provide inputs. But here's, I think, the biggest rub, Bago, is that we already have an incredible shortfall of actual warfighters. Fighter pilot shortfall, you know, if you're in the CAF, if you're in Global Strike, I mean, for the, for the actual folks that go into bad guy land, we don't have enough of them to fill the cockpits. So we certainly don't have enough of them to fill the staff. So while I understand where he's going, and I think that this could potentially be a very positive thing, we don't have the expertise on the staff to execute those programmatic responsibilities. And that's one of my major concerns. Steve, what are you seeing in the year ahead? Yeah, so I think you've touched on a lot of the big stories so far. I think of Next Generation Air Dominance Contract Award for the Air Force later this year as being the sort of signature event for the global aerospace and defense industry the biggest contract award of its kind for for aerospace anyway, or aviation, since the B-21 contract award back in uh, 2015. And you get a lot of new technologies, AI, adapted propulsion, a lot of other big things are coming through with that program. So yeah, um, that would be the biggest thing. And then under that, I mean, there's so many things we could talk about. Uh, Are we going to see another F-35 delivery this year? Uh, Are they going to be able to sort out the TR-3 bottleneck on uh, software uh, testing and hardware production ramp up. Because right now, all F-35s, uh, TR-3 deliveries are halted, and they've been so since July. And they're working on that, and they're trying to get it done by the end of June. But there are some real questions, uh, which General Schmidt acknowledged and even uh, elaborated on in his testimony last month about their ability to get better software through Lockheed's coding and testing process and then getting it on the jet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even if they can do that, there's some big bottlenecks in the supply chain. And that's not even the biggest priority in the F-35 program, right? Because when you talked to Bill LaPlante about it last month, his priority was all about readiness and uh, getting the spares up, which is another supply chain issue, getting the repair centers activated and, and getting uh, better quality out of the production system itself. So that's all part of it. Meanwhile, they're doing this big uh, propulsion upgrade and a big cooling upgrade. And it's fun, I mean, because, you know, we're talking about B-21s and NGADs and CCAs and all these other things going on. And we almost forgot and we, we're, we're almost struggling to focus on what is still the biggest program, you know, uh, military aviation program in the world, which is the F-35. Beyond that, B-22s are still grounded. They've got to figure this out this year. And this is a really hard problem. They still have not been able to figure out what is causing this uh, hard clutch engagement issue that has been the source of uh, so many incidents in the past. And, you know, that we don't know what happened in the last incident in Japan uh, last month that has triggered the, the ongoing grounding. But that that's one of those issues where I, I don't know how they 
uh, return to service without figuring that out. And this has been going on since 2008, just recently acknowledged in the past year or two. And they still don't have an answer for it. And in fact, they don't even understand why it's happening. I mean, there's a lot of, of those kinds of programs like that out there. We're going to see a lot on CCAs uh, this year, more definition of the concept, more definition of the categories that are being looked at and the competitors that are interested in this. You know, when I think of CCAs, I don't think of the airframe and the propulsion and kind of things that we traditionally think about as being the hardest part of this program. This is all about AI and software and collaborative autonomy, ownership autonomy, and how they make all that work in the time frame that they're talking about actually deploying these things by the end of the decade. That, to me, is the really hard thing and, and the real push on the technology side for this. And we still don't know really where things go with that. There's the replicator thing that DOD is doing and how that goes through the system, goes through DIU. And that's this whole other universe of possibilities with low-cost autonomous uh, systems, not the CCA level, but way down at the hundred to 200,000 or weight or even much, much lower than that you know, more disposable and attritable type of systems and how you uh, command and control them, how you how you launch and recover them if you're, if you're going to, uh, opens up a whole new thing and even just building the, them in the tens of thousands as they're hoping to do within two years. I should point out, you mentioned uh, Replicator and Tom, Dr. Tom Carrico of CSIS was on the program. And in uh, New York, asked Secretary Kendall uh, at the Bank of America conference that I co-host with Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America that I had to get that plug in there, part of our uh, Sunday lineup. And one of the things Secretary Kendall said was, and the Air Force has one competitor in there. And since I've learned that the U.S. Navy has three in there, and Tom was pretty coy about what the Army has submitted. So each of the services have submitted their sort of proposals under the replicator umbrella that looks like it's going to get some degree of funding when we see the 25 budget requests come in. JJ, I want to bring you in. You were in New York and obviously were there for both days of the conference for both the defense and the commercial. But I wanted to get, you know, sort of your sense on what you think the big stories of the year are going to be, but also get your take, given that you spent a lot of time on the Hill, how sensible it is to do a reorganization this big in what effectively could be the last you know, 10 months of an administration. Well, let me address that because I think Heather and Steve have done a terrific job of laying out the most significant issues that we're going to see, at least in U.S. air power this year. It is tricky to either start a program or end one close to the end of an administration. It's very easy for the next administration to come in and say, well, this new program doesn't have a big head of steam yet, so it's easy for us to kill it. Or we want to renew it. Remember what the Reagan administration did with the B-1 and restarting that line after the Carter administration had ended it. But on the other hand, it's important for an administration to set down what its priorities are and to try and get them moving. They don't know whether they will be the next administration or not, but if they are, they don't want to give away a year, essentially, by holding it close to the vest and not proposing it. Right. Something as broad as the Air Force reorganization is going to take a long time to implement, but it has to get started. And if it has the imprimatur of this current administration and they get reelected, that's much easier. If it has the imprimatur of this current administration and someone else gets elected, yes, it's fairly easy to reverse. But Secretary Kendall, when he spoke in New York on this subject, was pretty clear about the idea of building momentum and getting buy-in at least within the service, because all of those people in the Air Force and in the Air Force community are not 
subject to election. They're going um, to be there regardless. Yeah, and I, I think it's uh, interesting and a shout out, Heather, to your boss, Dave Deptula, retired lieutenant general and, and air power great. You know, I was at a briefing with him and the great Ron Bath, who ran the Air Force's QDR. I don't know, Steve, if you remember, I know, JJ, you certainly remember that. And I remember at a briefing some 23 years ago, they made the case for this exact kind of reorganization that is needed, right? That what we did in 1992, 93 was was critical, you know, right at the end of the Cold War. But we actually had to make some changes in organization. And Secretary Kendall has said it's sort of self-evident, you know, that anybody, when they see what we're doing, will understand why, why we're doing what it is that we're doing. JJ, you had a great presentation at Bank of America, actually, about, you know, all the major air programs. Dr. Rebecca Grant joined you as well, as she always does. I just wanted to get everybody's sense on at what point does the Air Force have to rob Peter to pay Paul on this? These are very big programs. Steve, as you said, right? I mean, NGAD is going to be huge, even if it doesn't generate a lot of airplanes. Collaborative combat aircraft is a big lift. B-21 is going well, but could go over budget. GBSD is going over budget. And I believe there's been a little bit of cross growth on B-21. Correct me if I'm wrong, JJ. So if you have a fixed amount of money, where's the give in this? We need more tankers faster. We need a new lifter that's on the radar screen. Heather, you know, JJ or, or, or Steve, whoever wants to start us off on this. How do you do this, you know, when you're on a fixed budget? Well, I, I can at least comment on how they've been trying to do it so far, which is essentially robbing Peter to pay Paul, right? So taking money out of readiness accounts, taking money out of the current uh, fleet inventory, retiring those and using those savings, applying them for next generation capabilities that may, may arrive in several years or beyond. And, you know, there's obviously complications with doing that. There's trade-offs that you're making. You know, some people would prefer the DOD to kind of take a more portfolio view of things, uh, which they do to an extent, but trading off, you know, Army capabilities that duplicate things that the Air Force is trying to do from the air, uh, where the Army is trying to do it from the ground, or the Navy is trying to do it from the surface. But at the same time, you, you do want redundancy in, in military uh, operations. So there is a limited amount of money. They're, they are shoving a lot of next generation capabilities into the system now, and there has to be a give somewhere. Uh, although, uh, to be fair, this is a pretty big defense budget. We're talking about over $800 billion and going up um, in the next few years as well. So anyway, those are my thoughts on it. I'm sure uh, others have even more insightful things to say about it. Well, I'm just going to mention the phrase divest to invest and then duck as Heather responds. Yeah, JJ's trying to uh, start a fight here. You know, this is 30 years of deferred modernization that the Air Force is having to make up rapidly. And the notion of having to divest to invest, I think, incurs a tremendous amount of risk over a number of different areas. And it's not just readiness. It's not just capacity. Do we have to take into consideration the expertise and experience of the warfighters that we will lose as we divest? I mean, it's that old joke. How do you get a 10-year fighter pilot? It takes you 10 years to do that. So I think there's a, a number of different things that need to be put on the table. I mean, we can just take a look at China, for example. How have they modernized their Navy and their Air Forces by taking risk and shrinking their land forces? Now, I agree with Steve that we need to have some redundancy there because we know that efficiency is not the way that you win wars. Being effective requires a, a level of inefficiencies there. But we do have to also, I think, be realistic in saying if we have 
underinvested in the capabilities that we need for today and the future, we have to actually just bite the bullet and make some of those rebalancing decisions so that we can get the capabilities that we need. And cannibalization of the service is not going to be effective when we need it. It's not going to hedge risk in the near term, and it's not going to deliver the capabilities and the capacity and the expertise that we need for the future. So I would look at, at doing some, some rebalancing across the services as we take a look at that enterprise portfolio. I would also look at how do we leverage the reserve forces, so the reserves and the Air National Guard, to be able to preserve some of that expertise in the human capital that we have so that we can do some of that recapitalization that we need. Because we know that if they're not, if they're not deployed full time, that we do get savings out of the reserve component. So how can we look at the total force as a way to shift and move around capabilities so that we can get some of that savings that we need for today? Because I will tell you, divesting aircraft today, it's not money that you own. The minute you let that aircraft go, Congress is going to say, or OC is going to say, oh, you don't need that money seven years from now. Great. We're going to take that away. So divesting so that you have money down the road is not how the Defense Department budget works. So that's a that's a tremendous risk that I'm very concerned about. So we've done a good job of talking about the big issues, but what are the little ones that maybe lurk in the back of your mind, things that may not be that likely, but if they come to pass, would have major impact, either black swan type events or just what are the wild cards that are going to surprise us? Well, in, in my view, the unknown or unknowns or the black swans uh, all seem to come from places like the supply chain, uh, the workforce, and you know, little design and engineering issues or production issues. I mean, we saw this just in the past week with this blowout of the uh, of, uh, mid-cabin door on the 737 MAX 9 from Boeing on Alaska Airlines. Obviously, it's not a defense situation, but those kinds of things happen in defense as well. And it's they're still investigating that. And, you know, we're still getting to the bottom of exactly what happened there. But, I mean, there there are real workforce issues, real supply chain and production issues that lead to operational challenges uh, like we're seeing on V-22 and F-35 right now and other programs, many other programs as well. So that's what I would look at overall. And I don't know how you fix it. It's definitely not a little thing. It's a huge thing. And that's where I would look for the big surprises that we don't want to see happen in 2024 would be coming from those kinds of places. I'm going to jump in and just echo a lot of what Steve said, is that one of my major concerns is the death by a thousand cuts. So it's the supply chain issues, it's inflation, it's operations maintenance costs, it's quality control. These are all things that, you know, cause me a great amount of concern because individually they might seem small, but these have been nipping at our heels for, you know, since COVID. Um, and so I think it's, it's highly problematic as we look at a generational shift of the workforce uh, and we have that gray wave retiring, we are seeing a lot of quality control problems. And so how that then impacts not just current production, but as we move into the future uh, is something that keeps me awake at night. So it's not a black swan event. It's not a big surprise, but it's a death by a thousand cuts. That's fascinating because both of you are talking about internal events rather than an external surprise of some kind, or, or have we just gotten so many of those recently that that's already priced in? <laughs> well, you know, um, it, a lot of that, a lot of that already priced in, of, of course, but I think 
One thing that I am concerned about is, are we being short-sighted or myopic about how events in Europe and the Middle East, what they're doing to signal the will, the strength, and the influence of of America uh, as a superpower across the globe? So what does this, how are we encouraging inadvertently or so forth, how are we potentially encouraging opportunistic behavior by adversaries across the world because of, of either our, our inability to get our internal stuff together, our continuous uh, debates over how we are going to support our allies, uh, our partners, or other strategically important uh, regions across the world? Couldn't agree with you more because uh, one of the interesting elements of this, Heather, is, and I, th- I think you're leaning toward, right, whether or not we should be striking missile launchers, right? Is it better to be just intercepting a whole bunch of uh, missiles, even if the U.S. Navy is learning some valuable lessons it might be able to use in the South China Sea? God forbid if something happens there. At some point, you have to signal to your adversaries that I'm going to take out your launchers, command centers, and whatever. So the administration is still talking about doing that. So even by the time this show airs, there could be some news on on that front. We've got about a minute left. And Steve, I want to turn this question to you because you and I have been covering this program since its inception, which is Future Vertical Lift. Everybody knows Bell's one of our sponsors. But you know, we have spent billions of dollars developing both uh, the technologies that we need for future long-range assault aircraft. Uh, we had a down select on that where Bell won, beating Sikorsky and Boeing. And there's FARA, which is the next, the future armed reconnaissance aircraft. And that's between Bell again, as well as Sikorsky. But now increasingly, you know, I'm hearing from my sources, well, FAR is effectively dead now that the aviator chief of staff of the United States Army, Jim McConville, isn't there anymore. And that, you know, well, FARA is not really going to replace the Blackhawk. It'll be an adjunct. The Army's preparing to order more Blackhawks. I mean, I'm looking at this a little bit as a taxpayer and saying, well, hang on a second. I thought this was going to be the future of Army aviation here. What, what is it we should expect over, over the next year on what is the largest aviation program for the United States Army? Un- unless it's just going to be buying more Smart Hawks or Black Hawks or whatever they want to call them in their latest iteration. You've raised all the questions I have about where Army aviation is going and, and how much they can afford and, and technically what they're trying to uh, get themselves into here, as well as, you know, the leadership change. Obviously, McConville was a Cairo warrior guy and, you know, uh, very interested in preserving FARA. And there's questions about just the Army's commitment to that program, as well as what they're trying to do with that is really hard, uh, packing all that performance into a single engine 3000 shaft horsepower helicopter with a rotor diameter less than 40 feet, which is part of the KPPs. Um, you know, that, that's a well, that's idiotic, a tough... idiotically. So, right. All, all they have to do is increase that by eight inches or a foot. And you have a dramatic increase in your lift capability and you're not stressing the whole design. I'm sorry, I digress. Go ahead. Well, of course, yeah. But I, I mean, you know, the, the Kiowa Warriors rotor diameter was 36 feet and they didn't want to increase it because they want to get that type of aircraft into even smaller areas than Kiowa Warrior could get into. But they actually enlarged it to 40 feet. You know, it's, I mean, they, there was a reason they, they arrived at 40 feet is we, we can't make it, you know, any bigger than this. But they're probably going to have to give it some give just to get the kind of performance that they really need to survive in other ways. And yeah, so, I mean, it's it's a really difficult thing. But the, the interesting thing about FAR is that it's not just the aircraft itself. It is an ecosystem. It, you know, produces a whole uh, operating system and autonomy system, as well as the launched effects and the connectivity to both air launch and ground launch effects and other UAS. And all of that can be ported into any helicopter the Army has, practically speaking. 
so in, in a way, they can still get a lot of what FARA gets them, even if they don't go forward with that program. Not that I expect the Army to make a dramatic pivot and cancel the program this year. At least, I mean, that, that kind of thing would really surprise me right now. But, you know, uh, it, 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 that is the, the big program to watch on the Army side about where they go with things. And Flora, I mean, you're right. It's, you know, a V280 was the more expensive option. That was very clear from the down select and the two competing bids, uh, at least on paper. You know, sometimes costs grow and probably costs, well, I mean, <laughs> costs could still grow with a V280 even beyond what their initial uh, proposal was. But at the same time, if the Army wants to do what they're talking about doing with multi-domain operations and the multi-domain task force, they need something that looks kind of like that to affect that operational vision that they have for the multi-domain task force. So it is a, you know, it's a real conundrum uh, as you think about how they go about doing this. And each service has their own uh, sort of paradoxical split between resources and requirements. So they see how it all works out. Well, we look forward to you both getting to strut as your predictions come true in 2024. Heather Penny, Senior Resident Fellow at the Mitchell Institute. Steve Trimble, Defense Editor of Aviation Week. Terrific to be back with you again. Thanks so much for joining us on the Air Power Podcast. And if you like the Air Power Podcast, don't miss our other weekly podcasts on the award-winning Defense and Aerospace Report Network. Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company. They clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. And our Technology Report, where we dive deep into the ones and zeros of cyber, networks, chips, and more. It's hosted by Vago Maradian. Congratulations to Chris, Chris, and Laura for winning 2023 Defense Media Awards. Thanks so much for joining us on the Air Power Podcast. And if you liked what you heard, hey, tell a friend, unless you think it would give them a competitive advantage. Thanks also to GE Aerospace for powering the entire flight. We'll be back next week. Yeah.